0: Hello, all, and welcome to the Gestalt IT Rundown, your weekly look at the IT News of the Week. I'm your host, Rich Drafalino. I'm an editor at Gestalt IT. Joining me from across this great land of ours is the one, the only, the man with a lustrous tombra, the networking nerd himself, Tom Hollingsworth. Tom, welcome to the show.
1: Hello, Rich. It is a pleasure to be here on this uh, fourth. 15th decade of March. <laughs> We're getting there. We're getting there. It's a real hot March, I've noticed. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Hottest March on record, I guess.
0: <laughs> uh, yeah. Uh, and the, but that's like stacking the days, so we just add the temperature for each day. Uh, Tom, are you ready for a little something we like to call news or not? Yeah. Yeah. This is where there's just so much news out there, folks, that we need to condense it down. I just need Tom's take on these. I'm going to give you the the kind of the, the bullet points here. Tom's going to tell me if it is in fact news or not, and a brief thought on it. First up, we have a new service from Microsoft called Dataflex, which is designed to let business developers create, deploy, and manage power platform apps and chatbots without leaving Microsoft Teams. It's a low-code data platform. This is, 2020 for me is an age of pandemic and also of low-code. And it provides relational uh, data storage, rich data types, enterprise-grade governance, and one-click deployments, all built on top of Power Platform's common data service. Dataflex also comes with some basic AI functions, but things like category classification, entity extraction key phrase extraction language detection sentiment analysis you you get the draw essentially the pitch here is that your business data is already connected with teams and you can assign it's already been assigned specific roles has all those kind of access permissions already set up so hey why don't we build data on or build apps on top of where the data already is Tom news or not
1: no, not news. Um, th- th- this is the software equivalent of of that that trend. Remember when everybody opened a cupcake place and then they all went out of business and became vaping shops, and then they all went out of business and became something else. Like I feel like everybody feels like they need to have some kind of new database technology, and it doesn't really do a whole lot.
0: Turns out uh, we all just want cake. Uh, we don't want little wrappers. All right, next up here, uh, Tom, something close to your heart. Uh, this week, Nokia announced the commercial availability of 5G standalone private wireless networking solutions for the enterprise. These devices wouldn't rely on existing 4G infrastructure and use 5G for up and downlinks. Currently, 3GPP standards have non standalone 5G using 4G as uplinks. For some context, that's what we mean by standalone. Uh, customers can deploy these networks using either Nokia's digital automation cloud platform or Nokia's modular private wireless solution. The former is more of a plug and play option that uses a small server with the application built platform built in, while the latter offers more customization. Standalone 5G from Nokia. News are now here, Tom.
1: That's news, um, especially given everything else that's going on in the 5G market. Uh, this kind of feels like Nokia is is taking an opposite tack from Ericsson. Ericsson wants to build the carrier play and do all the big stuff and Nokia's like, fine, we'll just go into the Enterprise and, and do basically 5G DAS. Uh, <laughs> that's a good thing, mm-hmm. but I want to see if people buy it. Because just like just like with other, every other technology, there are good ideas and there are ideas that people buy.
0: Yeah, this I think the challenge here for Nokia is this seems like very much a a capex play, whereas a lot of other five G stuff, at least not if you're a carrier, but if you're an enterprise, might be you know uh, not require such a big down payment. So it'll be interesting to see where they're going with that. Uh, Earlier this month, security researcher Bob Dianchenko and the team at VPN Mentor separately discovered a unsecured Elasticsearch cluster used by seven Hong Kong-based VPN providers that included over 1 billion log entries, including IP addresses, VPN server connections, VPN session tokens, and plain text passwords. Unsecured buckets on the internet, not news here, Tom, but... Tied to a VPN, it's kind of interesting. They're all tied back to the same central VPN provider that provides white label service to a bunch of different VPNs: uh, UFO VPN, Fast VPN, Free VPN. Some of the examples. Uh, Dianchenko alerted UFO VPN on July 1st, reached out to UFO's hosting provider subsequently on July 14th when he didn't hear anything back. The bucket was subsequently removed on the 15th, but the, it was available for search on Shodan for 18 days. UFO said staffing disruptions due to COVID-19 shoulder shrug had impacted its network security and said the logs were kept for traffic performance monitoring only these were all by the way no log bill as no log vpns tom the no log vpns turns out with logs news or not
1: news but only for people who believe that there's such thing as no log vpns <laughs> is is this a
0: we, we it was it was too good for it's the the pitch is too good
1: well, the look at the number of companies that are trying to sell you VPN services right now. I can think of like 10 off the top of my head from all the YouTube ads that I've seen. And those <laughs> are the ones that I don't trust. Mm-hmm. There are a couple that I use for various different things. Like when I went to Black Hat last year, I think my VPN went on when I hit the airport and didn't turn off until I landed back home again. Mm-hmm. But I trust those providers. If you don't own the VPN endpoint, you can't confirm that it's no log. And I'll be honest with you, they're keeping logs it's a CYA thing they're they're deleting them right away. Yeah, but there, there is that window where there's a log for what? 18 days that can be viewed that, you know, how, how do you prove that? Because you can't audit that. If it's your own infrastructure, you can audit that, but you can't touch this. So don't trust them, uh, do your research, do your homework. And I can't believe I have to say this. You're probably going to have to pay to get the features that you want. If it's a, if they're free and claiming they're no log VPN, they're lying to you. Uh, so all
0: no log VPNs are lies. <laughs> but is it uh, so is is that the news versus having it unsecured because reasons? <laughs> yeah. All right. Uh, next up here in other uh, interesting security news. On July 16th, the U.S. Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Agency issued an emergency order giving federal agencies 24 hours to patch Windows servers using a domain name system uh, used, used for domain name system purposes or applying uh, uh, other mitigations. Other uh, Others have until July 24th. Microsoft issued a patch for a workable Windows domain name uh, system server vulnerability on Tuesday. If unpatched, it would let attackers execute arbitrary code, intercept network traffic, and other horrible things. Checkpoint discovered that vulnerability. Vulnerability and calls it Sigred. Tom Newsome. No.
1: The U.S. government just told you to patch your stuff. Why is this a thing? They move <laughs> at the speed of a stunned snail. <laughs> um, th- that's how bad this is. These kinds of vulnerabilities that involve low-level protocols like DNS, huge, huge problem. Um, this is honestly, if this is not a, a, a huge driver for DNSsec, I don't know what is. But please, in the words of my friend Bob Plankers, patch. Patch, 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 patch,
0: patch. Patch, 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 patch. And finally, here on News or Not, on February 2nd, GitHub took a snapshot of all of its public repositories to create an archive of the projects it hosted, working with the archivers at Pixel, the company, wrote 21 terabytes of archives to 186 digital photosensitive archive film reels. So this is different than magnetic tape. Uh, This is actually photographic film that they're using. These were then subsequently transported uh, this July to Svalbard, Norway, to be stored in a decommissioned coal mine in the GitHub Arctic Code Vault, predicted to last 1,000 years. GitHub getting ready for the apocalypse, Tom. News or not?
1: Anybody's still using Python in 1,000 years, that'll be the biggest news I've ever seen. (laughs)
0: <laughs> well, so my but my question is, it, it, for legitimate purpose, I mean, outside of uh, hey, uh, the apocalypse is coming and we we can't get off this uh, uh hellscape roller coaster. For a, I guess for our archi- for like long term historical purposes, yes, hopefully no one is using Python in a thousand years, but we have systems to store you know literature and art and and all that kind of stuff. Do you think we will see more of these code-based, like kind of long-term historical archives going forward?
1: No, because I think ultimately code is a tool. It is not a work of art unto itself. And if you hate that, please flame me in the comments. (laughs) Um, If you think your code is art, you've got the wrong idea. Your code is execution software designed to achieve an end result. Um, You know, it's not Shakespeare. It's not even, you know, uh, Picasso. If if you write artful code, you could probably cut it in half. And I don't want people maintaining horrible JavaScript workarounds for the rest of time because they found it in some vault. And like we like some future French soldier discovers the GitHub Rosetta Stone, and suddenly we know how to do pop-up <laughs> ads again in a thousand years. Just oh, I I, I lo- the idea is sound in theory, but if you're displacing you know critical seeds or critical other things in code or in these, these, you know, apocalypse proof vaults. Uh, Okay, great. If John Connor suddenly discovers that go is able to reverse engineer terminators, I'll gladly eat my hat.
0: Uh, So uh, in the event of the terminators and Skynet taking over, please uh, see Tom. And uh, you guys can all go to Svalbard and check out uh, what's on GitHub available there. Also, I imagine the indexing time uh, will probably take another thousand years to uh, actually read all of that data (laughs) off of that archive. All right, next up here, interesting, interesting news. We talked a couple weeks ago about the speculation, the reports, that Dell was looking to do something with VMware. I did a checksum video kind of looking at this. And now we have the news that Dell officially is confirming that it's uh, exploring A potential spinoff for VMware at some point after September 2021. If that sounds weird, it's because of tax purposes. Uh, That's essentially why they're naming that date. They take a big tax hit if they would do anything with VMware before that. Uh, Yay, taxes. Uh, Dell currently holds an 81% stake in VMware. If the spinoff does occur, uh, Dell says it will maintain the mutually beneficial strategic relationship currently in place which is kind of important cuz most of their stuff is extremely tightly integrated with VMware at this point. Uh, we had speculated that investors were kind of motivating a potential spin-off to more clearly show the value of Dell outside of the highly profitable VMware or at least VMware was obscuring that to some shareholders. I don't pretend to understand financial machinations on a technical level though, Tom. What benefits are there for either company to spin off from each other? Like does it does it is there any play there on a technical level outside of financial motivations?
1: Technically, it's cash. <laughs> it's just it's it, all
0: about the it, Benjamins.
1: Here's the thing. VMware as a company would be better off separated. Mm-hmm. They would be better off being an industry standard new, neutral arms dealer, basically. Uh, you want to compete with Amazon? You want to compete with uh, Azure? VMware has that offering. We can work with them. We can work on your own stuff. It's great. But the problem is right now, Um, it's that uncomfortable feeling of, well, if we work with you, does that really mean we have to buy Dell stuff? It gets a little shady is not the right word, but it looks a little weird. Mm -hmm. And ultimately, here's the thing. When when Dell says we're going to continue the mutually beneficial relationship, the number you're looking for is 51%. They will continue to own VMware no matter what happens. What they're really looking to do is get some cash. They want to drive some value out of that ridiculous tracking stock that they came up with because VMware was too valuable of a company to just kind of sit there on the shelf. Like, you know, basically when grandma shoves like a wad of 20s under the mattress, that's what they were going to do. So the problem is, is they need to send some debt to VMware because VMware can get creative and get it paid off. And plus, uh, uh, Greg Farrow told me the other day that uh, if you reissue the debt now uh, because you paid it off with uh, cash that you got from the VMware stuff, uh, it's actually cheaper to refinance the debt because the interest rates have bottomed out. So it's a better play overall. And if there's one thing I can tell you about Michael Dell, one, he built, he built reasonably um, adequate computers in his dorm room back in the '90s, 80s and 90s. Um, but two the man's a financial wizard and he knows how to make this work for him so i i I don't know i here's the deal ultimately the timelines are too weird the language is too wishy-washy this honestly feels a whole lot like they're trying to pump the stock a little bit and figure out where they want to go next and i really honestly would not be shocked by the end of the year to see Dell go, well, we really didn't see the market conditions that we like, so we're not <laughs> going to spend them off anymore as we sit here and count all of the millions of dollars that you poor fools gave us in the stock market. It, it does seem like a like an
0: Elon Musk move to like just make short traders mad on Dell stock mm-hmm. at a certain point because <laughs> they, they just want I, I do That kind of thought crossed my mind uh, at the same time. I, I do wonder, with... You know, VMware is a tremendous. I mean, the the move that Dell finds themselves in, like you said, they have a tremendous amount of debt still from both the EMC acquisition and going pro- subsequently uh, going private uh, or going public again. Excuse me. Um, certainly, selling off a large portion of that stake in VMware would make them a more uh, financially limber company, right? Going forward, if they wanted to make other acquisition, large large scale acquisitions, investments, and stuff like that, uh, which could have uh, which could be very beneficial to Dell down the line, right? I, the 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 move that they have found themselves in though is that VMware doesn't seem like it's going to get less valuable, um, over time, like right? at least in the next year or two, right? So they can really slow roll this to play it to their to their most immediate advantage. Um, and and realistically, I don't see VMware becoming less valuable in the next five years. Um, they mm-hmm. seem to have a very solid roadmap. They seem to be able uh, to be adapting fairly quickly to industry trends and stuff like that. You never know what's going to happen, but um, so I don't. Uh, other than angry activist investors, I don't think Dell has to force their hand here in any way, which is a I guess a good position to be in. Uh, again, whenever you want to pump up that stock price artificially, <laughs> just randomly. So. Uh, we will see. We'll keep going forward in September 2021. We'll be back with an update on VMware. I'm sure we'll hear no other news until then. Right. All right, Tom. Do you remember uh, about a year ago or so, uh, you know, Microsoft was out talking about Windows 10X was going to be their next form factor for uh, dual screen devices, and it was going to be the next kind of big thing for Windows? Mm-hmm. So... Fast forward to May of this year and uh, Microsoft announced that Windows 10X, a.k.a. uh, Light or Santorini if you're following the codenames or whatever, would show up actually on single screen devices first. ZDNet's Mary Foley now reports that Microsoft will target business and education devices for a release in spring 2021 with a wider release and dual screen support coming sometime in spring 2021. 2022 foley sources also uh backs up a windows central report that the initial release of windows 10x won't support running win32 apps in containers as originally planned instead uh relying on cloud pc virtualization or uh for win32 apps essentially it's kind of to me that's a shoulder shrug um and also kind of playing this in more of the Chromebook competition space versus actually running Windows apps that people want. Foley says Microsoft is now aiming Win32 apps on Windows 10X for 2022. Foley sources also say Microsoft is considering changing the release schedule for Windows 10X to the spring and Windows 10 standard non-X to just once a year in the autumn. Uh, Tom, how uh, Microsoft gets a lot of credit justifiably for kind of changing their a lot of their corporate culture for not being the windows of the late 90s early 2000s Uh, i'm thinking of longhorn slash vista this seems like a very old school microsoft approach of look at the new hotness oh we're gonna make it super boring and slip on our delivery dates by several years uh is troubling for microsoft here or just being too ambitious
1: a little bit of ambition problem Mm. um One of the things that we found out over the course of the last, man, I don't know, call it three or four years, and and I'm speaking directly to Apple here, is that having a new software release that happens every year is likely the most uninspiring, unsexy thing that you can do. Because there's a lot of stuff that goes into operating systems that is just completely boring. Like, you know, we rewrote the system drivers to make storage 4% faster or the wireless doesn't drop all the time now. People don't want that. They want new, they want exciting, which is why they always wanted to upgrade version numbers. I mean, why did people go from, well, I know why people went from Vista to 7, um, but <laughs> why, why do people want to go from 7 to 10 or from 10 to 11 or from, you know, OS 10 this to OS 10, that other monument? Um, it's because people want to, Feel like they've invested and they've made made that happen, but Microsoft ran into a problem. They're not doing the yearly release schedules. They're doing like you know updates, which mm-hmm. are basically, for lack of a better term, those those um, you know Big Sur, Mojave, I don't know California sewage plant, whatever they're gonna call the next <laughs> one. Um, but but it's hard to, to like, you know, you, you, you throw like the old Kennedy quote, you know, you throw your cap, you throw your cap over the, the fence. Well, the problem is that they couldn't get the cap all the way over the fence because programming for these devices is hard. So what they got to do and, and you see this all other all over the place in other software development, you do the easy stuff first, make this thing work on single screen devices, make this a seamless experience. Then you go break the stuff to make the other part work. So how many times have you seen a bunch of features that got shoved into an Apple device beta that then got yanked out at the last minute because they didn't work, and then they might go in in like a .1 or .2 release? The one that I can think of from last year on iOS devices was the FaceTime feature where when you look at the camera, Mm -hmm. it actually, instead of your eyes looking at the camera, they're looking at the screen and vice versa. It's it's that... uh, that presence idea, it got yanked at the last minute because it turns out that's technically challenging to fix. And so it's supposed to go in, in iOS 14, according to what I've seen, but like, like that's the deal. I would rather Microsoft take the approach that Blizzard software has taken in years past, which is ship a complete product. Um, What was it? Shigeru Miyamoto, um, big fan of Shigeru Miyamoto said that if you delay a game to finish it, you will eventually ship a good product. But if you ship a bad game early, it's bad forever. And I know we live in the world of software patches and all that other stuff, but how many times have we told everybody, do not upgrade until the first service release comes out? That should tell you everything you need to know.
0: Yeah, and obviously, listen, Microsoft knows it's increasingly less and less in the OS game, right? In terms of driving revenue and driving growth. Uh, for the company Uh, and turns out hey guess what business and education are probably the two places that are going to drive revenue growth in that declining market already for them so I guess I'm not surprised to see them shift to that it's just weird to see them being so aggressive tying this to a form factor and basically seeing just a ton of that being walked back now if they can eventually ship something that drastically simplifies the interface actually helps them get to some more unified, you know, "quote unquote" modern app design, something like that. Eventually, that's that's good for our, I would think everybody, especially if down the road you do get that Win32 compatibility, so that you're not leaving legacy out in the cold. Uh, it it's just it doesn't play it 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 doesn't play with that narrative that we've come to expect uh, from the company. So we will see uh, if there's further slippage going forward. We know Mary Jo Foley will have the inside source uh, as she always does over at ZDNet. Uh, so always mm-hmm. appreciate seeing her reporting. And finally here, uh, last week, uh, an interesting story uh, coming out of the Europe. Turns out they like the regulation. Uh, Last week, the European Court of Justice struck down the EU-US Privacy Shield framework that governed how U.S. companies handle bulk data collections from European citizens. They, They specifically targeted some of the rules around the bulk data collection, kind of the more contractual stuff is still... It still exists under a different framework. The court found that the primacy of U.S. surveillance law and inadequate ability for EU citizens to register complaints did not meet the standards of EU law. Currently, 5,384 companies relied on that framework and will now have to readjust their privacy policies for European data collection. According to the Computer and Communications Industry Association, 70% of those businesses, of those 5,300 businesses, were certified under the framework were SMBs. Many larger companies use uh, what are called shorter uh, standard contractual clauses for their data governance, uh, and they can also much more easily shift to European-based servers, probably because they have European-based data centers, to shift those to Tom, I'm curious. Uh, again, usually uh, when there's a, a "Hey, let's let's have more privacy," all for that, it does seem like SMBs could potentially be left in the lurch. And this is, I, I think, Protocol had this story here, and I really appreciate them highlighting this about some of uh, this is something that's not quite as headline grabbing as you know GDPR or uh, any of these big privacy regulations, but could have major impacts for a lot of these organizations. <sighs>
1: Yeah, it's it, privacy is a tough thing. And and if you watched my recent conversation about end to end encryption, it's a it's a it's a sticky wicket mm-hmm. because do you, how much is enough or how much is too much? And and what happens when someone wants to erode that? I just I, I they they worked together to build this framework and it was inadequate. Okay, so what how do we fix that? Well we fix it by making a better framework. Now, here's the thing you need to know about the Europeans. If it's not working, they're just going to cut it out because they don't want to violate GDPR. They don't want to violate their strict sovereignty and privacy laws. And, and I get it. It's unduly harsh on small businesses because most of the people who do business are small businesses. And they don't they don't have legal teams that sit around thumbing their nose at everything until it's time to go to work and rewrite this, this draft law or whatever it is. So they are going to have to have help Navigating this, but ultimately, this is for the better. This is jumping through hoops to protect customers and protect yourself from fines. You know, Google gets a five billion dollar fine dropped in their lap because they screwed something up. They'll fight it, but eventually, they'll pay it. If a small business gets a three hundred and fifty thousand dollar fine dropped in their lap because they unknowingly violated GDPR, that's the end of the business.
0: Yeah. It. it- and and the reason i bring that up is i am sympathetic i guess to a business that is op- you know was operating under this framework and and the way this is set up is so that they you know they can be able to collect data that they that ostensibly they need for to continue to do a business with these customers they're doing it in a way that they've been told is uh, an acceptable level of privacy to get to and now this is the second uh, uh, kind of framework like this that's been struck down by EU courts. There was another one that was uh, struck down just before this one got enacted. Again, Tom, you're absolutely right. They'll go back to the drawing board. It's in everyone's Again, it's in everyone's interest to have these frameworks um, so everybody can be compliant. It just, you know, when the, the ground is shifting under you as a business, you know, tough, I guess it's just tough to, you know, it's one thing for GDPR, which is a big regulation that we had years of advance notice. To uh, you know, be able to be compliant. Not to say that it was easy for a lot of organizations, especially smaller ones. Uh, but that seemed like more like a set standard. Where this seems uh, a little bit like slippery sand. Now, this doesn't mean that organizations can't do business. They can't co- that they can't collect data from European customers. It just has to be more on a individual transactional uh, basis. Uh, you know, so you can still do e-commerce. You can still do all that kind of stuff. Uh, it, it, this is more uh, centered on uh, again bulk data collection. Uh, so, again, a little bit more of a niche use case, and that's why it's only 5,300 businesses as opposed to, you know, tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands or something like that. Yeah. So we will keep an eye on that and see if there's a new uh, agreement uh, coming, uh, you know, sometime later this year or, or, or what have you. But that just about brings us to the end of the Gestalt IT Rundown. Tom, thank you so much for being here. Where can people find more of your great stuff if they are so inclined?
1: Best thing to do is head over to gestaltit.com. I've been posting some uh, briefings uh, summarized that I've taken of also doing some event coverage. There's going to be some more stuff coming out. We've got uh, Mobility Field Day coming up next week. Uh, some great presentations there. If you want to head over to techfieldday.com, get the lineup. Um, I'm sure there's something you're going to enjoy, whether it's uh, access points or analytics or even a little bit of uh, CBRS.
0: Excellent. And, uh, you can always, uh, head over to, if you're not watching this on YouTube, head over to youtube.com slash it video. We have new episodes, uh, not of this show. Uh, we also have new conversations as, uh, Tom alluded to and, uh, a checksum, which is uh, a weekly video series that I do that posts every Monday. Uh, we're going to have a new episode out. I'm working on it later today, looking at the history of teleconferencing and what the heck happened to Skype. Uh, so make sure to check that out, uh, in your feed, make sure to like, and subscribe to, uh, like the video, subscribe to the channel, do the YouTube things. Uh, I have to point down here for legal purposes. I just have to do that whenever I'm on a YouTube video. Uh, That's just, those are the rules. I don't make them. But until the next time we meet for myself, for Tom Hollingsworth, for all of us here at the Gestalt IT family, here's wishing you and yours to have a super sparkly day.